0: Explore more stories like Alex's at Meta.com slash Metaverse Impact. I don't
1: know the truth. Hello everyone and welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm talking to you today from Los Angeles. I'm finally back for a couple days after a wonderful week in New York City. Thanks to everyone who came out to see my new stand-up show at the Bell House. We blew the roof off of the place. My friend Max ZT, the hammered dulcimer player, opened us up with some beautiful music. This incredible comic I met just while I was in New York named Benny Feldman did some incredible one-liners. This guy is great. Look him up. If you've never seen him, his name's Benny Feldman. And I got to meet so many of you who listen to the podcast, who watch my TV shows. It was awesome. If you live in San Diego, I'm going to be there this weekend. And if you live in Portland, I'm going to be there later in September. Please come see me live. I would love to meet you. And by the way, if you love the podcast and you love what I do, please lend me some support on Patreon. You can find me at patreon.com slash Conover. Just five bucks gets you access to every episode of this show ad-free. That's right, no ads, plus occasional bonus podcast episodes. And uh, you can join our community Discord, chat with like-minded folks. We have a live book club. It's a blast. Head to patreon.com slash Conover to support the show. So look... America has some big problems, to say the least. As we discussed with Chris Hayes on the show a couple weeks ago, we are now facing an anti-civil rights movement. A movement that is present and growing and powerful in America right now to take rights away from women, black people, queer people, immigrants, and more. This anti-civil rights movement has its own media, it has power in the courts, it has power on school boards, in sheriff's departments, state houses, and every other office of government up to the United States Senate. And as much as we would rather it not be so, this movement is not fringe. It's one of the most powerful political movements in America today. And worst of all, one of its primary goals, a goal it has had massive success at, is anti-democratic. It aims and has succeeded in taking the vote away from Americans across the country and in tilting our entire democratic system towards policies that it supports and against policies that are supported by the majority of Americans. And that makes it very hard to fight because, you know, democracy is how we exercise power in this country. So if you don't have access to democracy, well, you can't get anything done. I mean, how are we supposed to address climate change, labor rights, freedom of speech or anything else when the right to vote is under threat this way? The challenges in front of us often seem simply impossible, right? I mean, what are we going to do about an unaccountable Supreme Court devoted to taking away long-earned rights? What are we going to do about an electoral college that can readily thwart the popular will or a Senate that tilts power away from people and towards giant masses of land? What are we going to do about the fact that there seems to be an endless supply of money flowing from reactionary billionaires who support the project of taking rights away from everyday Americans? And what do we do about the fact that our politicians seem unable or unwilling to address these threats head on? Well. Over the next month on Factually, we're doing a special series that's gonna attempt to answer those questions. A series that's gonna bring on incredible experts who are gonna be able to tell me and you and all of us what we can do to fight back against all of these threats. Not just what we can do as a country, as a society, but what you can do individually. It's my hope that in this series, you will get some tools that you can use to make change in your own community and change for all of us nationally. And that together, we can chart a course towards fixing some of this shit, okay? I'm really looking forward to it, and I hope you are too. And this episode is the first episode in that series. So, again, returning to the question of this anti-civil rights movement, what do we do about it when it is successfully taking the levers of democratic power away from us? Well, I think what we need is a new civil rights movement to counteract it. See, the movements of the past, the civil rights movement of the 60s, the labor movement of the 1890s through the 1930s, the disability rights movement of the 70s, the gay rights movement of recent history, all of these movements accomplished an incredible amount. They transformed America in ways where, you know, the job isn't done, but they made a better world for all of us, and they did it in the face of even greater opposition than we face today. I mean, just to take the case of the civil rights movement for black American rights in the 60s, this movement faced a country that never even attempted to be a full democracy, that had systematically deprived black Americans of any democratic institutions or vote whatsoever for centuries. Profound racism and inequality was the law, and it was enforced with violence, with state violence from, you know, not just mobs, but the actual government itself. And yet, they fought and won. Likewise, American workers, despite the fact that they never had any power over how the companies or the bosses treated them, started organizing in the late 19th century in the face of massive violence from their own government, and they did so with such success that they transformed the American workplace. So, how do we repeat those successes? I mean, we've been trying, right? The largest protest movement in American history erupted after the murder of George Floyd, but as we discussed with James Forman Jr. a few months ago, that movement, in many ways, seemed to fall short of its aims. So, how can we make real, durable change for civil rights in America? What did those earlier movements know? What did they do that was so successful? What did they know about how to make change that we can draw from today? Well, To answer, our guest today is both a scholar of civil rights movements and an organizer herself. She's a professor at Bard College, and her writings about the U.S. labor and civil rights movements have been published in Jacobin Magazine and The Forge, and she's the co-founder of an organization called Reclaim Rhode Island. I am so thrilled to have her on the show, and I hope you are too. Please welcome Mia Inouye. Mia, thank you so much for being on the show.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: I'm very excited to talk to you because you're a you're a scholar of social movements. Is that correct? Tell me a little bit about your work.
2: Correct. Yes. Um, I'm a political theorist, but I write about um, organizers and social movements as uh, political theorists and sort sources of political theory. And my um, book that I'm working on um, looks specifically at um, theories of social change that developed. Um, through the labor movement of the 1930s and through the uh, long civil rights movement um, from the 30s to the 70s um, in the U.S.
1: So when you say theories of social change, these are theories on the part of the people in these social movements? Uh, these are, are these their own theories? They're saying, this is how we think we're going to make change in America
2: sometimes um so they are the theories of the actors themselves but they're not always explicitly stated in that way right Mm. um so this is like one of the challenges of writing about organizers as political theorists usually like political theorists read books um and you know we study like people treat like monographs and treaties about human nature or democracy or whatever um but the people that i study like you know Ella Baker, for example, a civil rights organizer, wrote very little. Organizers mm. tend not to have a lot of time to to write, and the writing that they do do doesn't look like this, right? It, it's in the form of like field notes or memos or pamphlets. And so, part of what I try to do is tease out the kind of implicit theories based on people's writings, but also based on decisions that they made.
1: Yeah. Well, the reason I'm so excited to talk to you is because you know we're in this moment of uh, I don't want to say unprecedented but it, it certainly feels to me very large uh, challenges in American and world history that there's uh, a whole lot of forces bearing down on us that seem very difficult to change and look I was brought up as maybe you were too being given this history of these social movements that like hey they did it you know between the 30s and the 60s or 70s roughly uh, they did it people rose up they changed America. The end. <laughs> right? And now and now we're done, and we can keep sort of moving forwards. And the thought that I keep returning to is that it kind of seems like we need some social movements on that scale again. We need a new labor movement. We need a new civil rights movement to fight back against the anti-civil rights movement that is currently taking rights away. Um, and I've been very deeply invested in, in figuring out, okay, I, I mean, who were these people? How did they do it? Like, it's a... It's, uh, it, it, the The challenges ahead of us seem so massive, uh, and they seem so. You know, people are walking around going, "What the hell do we do?" Let's just give up because there's, you know, what what possible step I, can I take? And yet, folks like Ella Baker, who were deeply involved in the civil rights movement in the, you know, in the South from the '40s to the '60s, or in America at large, well, they faced even greater challenges, and yet they they somehow put this movement together. And so, I've been trying to figure out what the hell is the recipe <laughs> for mm-hmm. it. Been doing my own reading. Uh, is there any connecting thread that you see in these social movements that we could use as a starting point to figure out what they knew that we can learn.
2: Yeah, definitely. I agree with your um, kind of the picture that you've laid out of the Conjuncture that we're that we're at, I think people are increasingly coming around to the view, especially with Dobbs, um, the overturning of, of Roe v.ersus Wade recently, that you know we, we don't live in a democracy, right? That it's hard for us to plausibly say that this is like a democratic society, and we face huge obstacles um, to actually making um, the will of the majority like. The, the law, right? Um, and so it is a time, I think, to look. And, and then I think, like you said, also a lot of people feel kind of hopeless and like there isn't a clear path from here to there, right, to the, the, the kind of scale of social change that we need to see. But I think the reason, one of the reasons that it's important and, and valuable to look to the past, is that there's never when you read you know the history of social movements you learn that there's never been a clear path to any of the significant moves towards further democratization of our society that have happened right mm-hmm. um, and nonetheless the, those those you know moves have people have made those those changes and so the thread that I see and that I that I would be most excited to talk about today is the role of of both of two forms of political action in creating um the kind of changes that we saw in the 30s and that we saw in the 50s and 60s. Um, and those are uh, on the one hand, mass action, um, and on the other hand, organizing. Mm-hmm. Um, I can quickly give you give you my definition of those terms. Yes, please. Yeah. Okay, great. So mass action is a term that comes up a lot when you read labor history and also when you read the history of the civil rights movement. Um, sometimes it's, it's actually um, called mass direct action. Um, and, some, and that gives you kind of a sense of what it means. So um, direct action is um, political action, action that's taken outside of the established mechanisms for making change right? And that causes disruption at a scale that like, you know, is, it's, it's meant to force concessions, right? Yeah. Um, and so mass direct action or mass action is that kind of action outside of the established mechanisms, but at a scale, um, you know, with the participation of, of so many people that it actually can incapacitate the institution in question, right? Mm. And force concessions from elites.
1: Do, do you have an example of either of those that, that would be familiar to people?
2: Yeah. So for for mass action, you know, we can look at we could talk about the strike wave of 1934. Mm. Um, we can talk, you know, we can think of lots of other you know, strikes that we've seen since then. We can talk, you know, the civil rights movement is exemplary for it, the mass, forms of mass action that it innovated. We can think about the Montgomery bus boycott. We can think about the march um, from Selma to Montgomery. We can think about the march on Washington. And in our recent memory, in our lives, like, we can think about the summer of 2020. Um, which was a you know a form of mass action in which many of us participated.
1: Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, and, and I and so many of those, whether you're talking about a strike or you're talking about the Montgomery bus boycott, those are actions where it wasn't. Hey, we're not we're not electing someone who is going to pull a lever that is you know sort of sticking out of the political apparatus right. and make a change. It's like no, yeah. we are. We're going to marshal our own power to. Fuck up the system enough that we force a change to happen. That uh, even though the system itself is unwilling, by depriving the bus system of money, by depriving an employer of you know the labor that they need to make money. I mean, I I think the strike is to me a very canonical example of this. Is that right?
2: Exactly, it is. And the term really comes out of the radical labor movement, right, of the early 20th century. A lot of people associate. A lot of people sort of trace the origins of the term direct action to the international workers of the world. Mm. Um, So, yeah, it is like a labor, you know, a labor idea. And I was really interested when I did research on Ella Baker to realize that although nobody thinks of her and nobody writes about her as like a practitioner of mass action, she uses that term constantly. The theory of change, you know, implicit in um, the practice of mass action is that for ordinary people, right, for poor people, for working people, for people who are not elites, we've never had, as we said at the outset, clear paths to implementing our will, right? Um, Mm. Because the electoral system is in many ways stacked against us, right? Which doesn't mean that we can't do anything through the electoral system. It's also a useful vehicle for change. But we don't have clear paths to, like, you know, a Green New Deal or to universal health care or to even gun control, right, like through um, through the electoral system. But we do still have a source of leverage. We have multiple sources of leverage. And that is basically our cooperation, right, with mm. the institutions that govern our lives. So we cooperate when we go to work. We cooperate um, when we obey the laws. You know, we cooperate in all of these ways, and, our, and society depends on our cooperation. And so here I'm drawing a lot on... Um, a very famous and um, kind of amazing book called Poor People's Movements by Francis Fox Piven and Richard Clower. You know, if your listeners are interested in this idea of mass action and disruption as the source of ordinary people's power, they really lay out this case that the way that we've, you know, achieved things um, as the working class in the past is, um, you know, not principally by electing the right people to office or by lobbying elites through established channels, But by being disobedient.
1: Yeah. Well, there's some degree to which it requires both, right? I mean, the labor movement was a century almost of extremely disruptive direct actions, you know, strikers being killed by law enforcement, um, you know, uh, workers, you know, really throwing a wrench Mm -hmm. in the gears of capitalism. But also the labor movement only persisted because eventually laws were passed that guaranteed, yeah. uh, you know, Americans' right to form a union. Exactly. Same, same is true of the civil rights movement that, exactly. you know, the Kennedy administration, the Johnson administration were like, they played a role. They were mm-hmm. responsive to those direct actions. Yeah. But yeah.
2: There,
1: there is an electoral piece of it, right?
2: Yeah, you put it, right. It does social change require does require both when when you kind of realize that uh, you know the main source of leverage that ordinary people have is is in um you know collective action at scale right and that is disruptive um you know that doesn't that shouldn't lead us to like abandon electoralism at all but rather to think a little bit differently about it right to think about the ways that worker militancy in the 1930s, not only kind of created a context where a lot of the policies that we know as the New Deal were passed, but also that they were enforced. Right, that they were, that it, that there was actually political will to enforce them. Right, because because workers were in the streets, right? Um, And similarly, you know, with every crucial piece of legislation that we associate with the classical phase of the civil rights movement, it was preceded by mass action, right, by um, disruption across the country that created a, a situation where it was necessary for Johnson and even for, like, Northern Republicans to do something, Right.
1: So uh, mass action is the first pillar you want to tell us about. The second was organizing. Tell us about that.
2: We use the word organizing a lot. It can mean a lot of different things. But I think, you know, the most basic definition is that organizing is getting together with other people um, to form a collective, uh, to pursue shared goals, right, in a sustained way. And that could be um, a labor union, that could be a Um, a political party. That could be a community organization. That could be a mutual aid association. These are all different forms of of organizing. And I think that a really important question for scholars of social movements um, and really for like all of us in this moment is what is the relationship between these two forms of political action, right? Between mass action and between organizing. Mm. Um, and i think that's important for us right now because we've just i think part of why this feels like a demobilizing and kind of you know dark time is because we all just lived through the biggest protest movement in american history um mm. and and now you know the the political winds are not at our back right yeah. um we are so we are, feel, we are feeling like wow if we we, you know, we, we did that much mass action and, like, this is all we have to show for it, you know? <laughs> I, think, I think it can be um, disheartening. And also, you know, we, we all felt the difference. We all felt the difference between a historical moment when a mass movement is possible and a historical moment like we're living in now where it, it isn't or it doesn't feel like there's that energy in the streets, Right. Um, So we're kind of keenly aware of the degree to which mass action is is not entirely in our control. Right. Um, That it depends a lot on historical contingency. And, you know, that I think can be sobering
1: yeah uh let's talk more about the current moment and, and how you view that and i assume you're talking about the 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 moment post george floyd's murder that that's the yeah. moment you're speaking of let's let's get into that but we have to take a really quick break we'll be right back with more anyway Okay, we're back with Mia. So uh, we were just speaking about the social movement post uh, George Floyd's murder, which you described as the largest social or largest mass movement in American history. That is a that's actually a strong statement. I'm kind of surprised by it. Um, why do you uh, characterize it? Is it just raw numbers of people in the streets? Yeah, or? just
2: numbers of people in the streets and number of like protests. Right. Mm-hmm. I think there were like over um, like ten thousand, you know, protests like across the country that, that summer, um, which, you know, like that's, that's really unprecedented. Um, yeah. you know, basically every major American city, but also like minor cities, you know, had, had a protest. Yeah. We lived through something really unprecedented.
1: But as you say, it fe- so it felt like a historic moment, you know, I, yeah. I w- go back through my journal at the time and I was just like, Oh my God, I'm living through history right now every day you don't know what's going to happen. And sometimes you were shocked by the brutality of it, you know, living in Los Angeles, watching in, you know, what was happening downtown at the protests, um, some of which I joined, but some of which I watched from afar. Uh, and, you know, but but also the the changes that you started to see sweep across the country, um, the, the ways people started speaking differently, the consciousness that seemed to arise in everybody simultaneously. It, it felt like a spark really caught And, you know, a flame started burning. But then a year later, it felt like there was a rainstorm. It felt like the moment passed it. I'm going to mix metaphors, but it felt like a mirage that dissipated, you know, that. Yeah, uh, I I look back. go Oh, yeah, there was this moment of possibility. And now I don't feel it anymore. What? what happened um and in fact you started to see the i've talked about this on the show before but you know seeing the seeing the difference from joe biden's first state of the union where he said he just said we need to do something about police violence in his own words but he he did make that statement the next year he made no statement about that he said we need to refund the police police. Yeah. yeah which is like forget policy it's just the politics of of which direction he feels the wind is blowing at that time that he needs to speak to is that's a that's an immense reversal um and it feels like the pressure has dissipated as well the pressure on people like biden we're not in the streets anymore so what why do you feel having looked at you know the history of these movements is there a reason that you feel that that happened
2: yeah so um let's start with um you know why that movement was possible in the first place, right? We all know that the trigger for that, for the uprising of the summer of 2020 was um, the video of um, George Floyd's murder, right? But there had been many previous such videos, right? Yeah. Um, there are You can say there are things that were distinctive about that one, but, you know, it doesn't seem different enough to have warranted such a different response, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think... Think It's clear that uh, the protest had a lot to do with the fact that we were living through a global pandemic, yeah. that the state was massively mishandling state legitimacy was the legitimacy yeah. of the state was at an incredibly low point. Right. Um, and other people have have made have made this point. But I, I think that that ex- experience of the state's indifference, like seeming indifference to a mass death event, along with the economic precarity that so many Americans were experiencing, created an ability for people to empathize um, in a way that they perhaps had not with the vulnerability to premature death that George Floyd experienced and that Black Americans have always experienced in this country, right? Yeah. Um, and on top of that, right, a lot of people were home, either because they were unemployed or because they were working remotely. Um, people's lives were really disrupted, right? Um, and that created, I think, among other things, an opportunity for people to think right? Which, which is one of the main things that we usually don't have that, you know, depoliticizes us. So, um, you know, all of these like extraordinary historical factors were at play and made it possible for this incredible event to, to happen and for this incredible display of solidarity um, to, to happen. Um, as you say, it felt like it dissipated quickly. And then there has been a kind of like intense Political backlash, yeah, and I can't, you know, fully account for for all for that. Um, but I I do think that you know, as someone who participated in the movement, and you know, I, I assume like most of your listeners probably were were part of it, right? So I think we can all reflect on um, you know what we think we could have done differently or better. You know, there are a few things that come to mind to, to to me, right? So first of all, I think that we were in the streets for a number of different reasons. We were in the streets because of our feelings of empathy and solidarity with George Floyd and with other black Americans who um, regularly experience brutal police repression. But we were also in the streets because we were all suffering, right, in different yeah. ways. Um, and I'm not sure that we really um, figured out as a movement how to connect those different, um, you know, plates, right? Mm-hmm. And how to kind of um, forge a durable coalition coming out of that moment. Um, And I think that's important because I I think that people are capable of doing extraordinary things, you know, as um, in solidarity with other people's plights. But I also think that in self-interest is like a or shared material interest is a powerful motivator. And I think that we need, you know, work that lies ahead of us is figuring out how to connect the dots between the different kinds of um, struggles that we all face in, in this society um, and how to um, kind of cohere those into demands that can reemerge, right? Um, the next time we have a moment of mass action, which of which there will certainly be more, right? So that's one thing that, that comes that I've been thinking about a lot.
1: Yeah, it. it... It's funny, what you're describing sounds like a lot of the conversations that you know I have in union circles when we're talking about how to build solidarity within a union. While everybody actually has their own job with their own needs, often a union covers different people with different occupations or slightly different occupations in the same workplace, um, or in the case of the uh, guilds that I'm a member of, the same occupation at different workplaces. But you need to find the thing that connects everybody's experience that is both their self-interest – and also the self-interest of everybody else <laughs> exactly. so that so that, you know, I guess it's not just having solidarity. Yeah, we were out there in solidarity with with George Floyd to say, well, your struggle is my struggle, but also finding a way to literally connect my struggle to, to your struggle so that I, I see it as literally the same. I'm not just having empathy. Uh, we yeah. are part of the same struggle. We have the yeah, same. You understand interest. that you
2: have something at stake right? That you also have something at stake and you feel that viscerally, right? I think that's really important. Um, I also think that, you know, if we look to the um, labor movement of the 1930s, um, to the civil rights movement um, in the 50s and 60s, there's an interesting interplay between organization and disruption and mass action. Mm -hmm. And I think that organization, right, organ, organizing can't create those moments. Like nobody organized the summer of 2020 into existence. You know, it can lay the groundwork and it can um, produce leaders who can kind of help to direct and um, and magnify the impact of mass action. Um, so, for example, like in the 1930s, there were a number of general strikes, right, like across the country in 1934. Um, there was the Longshoremen strike on the West Coast. There was the Teamsters um, strike in, in Ohio, in Toledo, um, in Minneapolis. Um, there was an auto worker strike, right? And in each of these cases, there were radicals, right? Like communists, socialists, Trotskyists, like, you know, fellow travelers who had a presence in that city and who led the strike, right? Like yeah. they, they couldn't have done it on their own. They were like small cadre organizations. But They, you know, like Harry Bridges, for example, in San Francisco is like a communist, um, you know, longshoreman. And he led that strike. Right. And he made it as militant as it was. Right. Um, So that it actually became like a a general strike, right, across the entire city and really shut down the entire city. So I noticed, I mean, there were so many different protests and I don't know what they were all like. I was in Rhode Island, which was like, you know, a very obscure place to be, um, you know, that summer. But even where I was, like, I did feel a kind of. Not that there weren't organizations and leaders in the fray, but I I did feel like there could have been a little bit more leadership to to make the moment even more impactful.
1: Yeah. Well, it it, it struck me that the movement was high on mass action, low on organization. That uh, you know people were coming out in spontaneous displays. And there's an immense amount of power to that. Hey, on social media, hey, we're all going down. We're all we're all headed downtown. Show up. Here's where we're all going. And that's something that everybody can say. Everyone can blast that out to their friends. But once you want to make a strategic decision, uh, there's no organizing apparatus to make a collective decision that represents the movement, um, yeah. and that everyone in the movement, everyone on the street, feels has credibility. Um, there's there's no organizing to do that. And then that's the one half of organizing the other half is well when you want to turn people out not just via twitter but on a tuesday because there's something in particular you want to do um you don't have the apparatus to do so and i'm reminded of again just you know reading about the civil rights movement like the you know the Uh, all these different levels of organization that there were there were the small you know small group meetings among leaders who were respected there were mass meetings in which you know people would debate what to do next and in which like information would be distributed there was like a a a real uh, uh, a a lot of importance put on you know distributing the message about what to do next to the community um and that's something that you know, often exists within the labor movement, for instance, when taking a, a strike, a strike is, uh, is highly organized you know, the way we do yeah. it today. But this was the opposite of that. And it seems to me that that was maybe one of the reasons that uh, that follow up action couldn't be taken. Because when you say, hey, all right, we were all out on the street last week, but now we want to go do something very specific. Well, where is everybody? You don't know how to get in touch with them again, because they all just showed up because of social media.
2: Yeah, exactly. And again, you can't organize something like at that scale. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and organizations, So Piven and Cloward, who I mentioned earlier, you know, they make this really provocative argument that organization stifles movements. Right. Like that. It's mm-hmm. the wrong impulse to be like, mm-hmm. oh, guys, like we just need to all go to meetings. Right. When people are rioting in the streets. Right. Because what you're doing then is actually taming um, the um, kind of unbridled energy of the movement, which is actually a source of power. Right. I think they go a little far with that argument, though. Mm. Um, and I think that you know, what it, it does matter that you have the kind of knowledge and relationships and um, like kind of infrastructure in place um, to be able to like interact with history in those moments. Right. Yeah. Um, and that is one, I think, big difference between our moment and the 1930s or the 1950s and 60s. We, as a society, are very disorganized, right? We yeah. um, have lived through decades of neoliberalism um, that has, you know, decimated the labor movement, right? It's been on a 60 year decline. There's this amazing book called Diminished Democracy by Theta Scotchpole, um, where she shows that, like, from the mid 19th century to the mid 20th century there were like you know all of these giant civic organizations like f- at one point like 58 civic organizations like the American Legion the Knights of Labor etc that each had like um, like one, 1% or more of the american population right wow um can you imagine if like we have like we're like you know 330 million people in the us like if there were like three million people in Democratic Socialists of America, and like three million in like the American Legion, and like more than half of the country was in an organization,
1: I mean, we have no organizations of that size. I mean, like, look, something I've just noticed around Los Angeles. This is a very silly example of this, but like in Los Angeles, when we're filming in uh, in the entertainment industry, one of the big uh, sets that we use are Masonic lodges and Elks lodges, which are these big fraternal organizations that existed for a century or more, had membership everywhere, and all of these organizations own their buildings, but. None of them have memberships anymore. You go in, and there's like two old dudes drinking whiskey at the bar. And so, what do they do? They rent out the space to film crews. But it's evident; it's really, to me, physical evidence of oh, these used to be vibrant. Now, those are not really political organizations to the degree that you're talking about. But look but at they stuff are.
2: like okay, like and, that's part of Theta's... Like, Athira Scotchball's argument is that they served really important political functions. Like they mm. often did actually you know, um, like, organized to get legislation passed at the federal level. They often helped to implement legislation. You know, the American Legion was famously, like, really important in the passage of the GI Bill. Some of them were labor federations, like the Congress of Industrial Organizations. But even when they were not political explicitly, they are a structure, right, uh, it, within which people have intimate relationships, right, yeah. with many other people, and people develop habits of, like, Co- cooperation right yeah um, and discipline and I think that we are extremely alienated and undisciplined right <laughs> as a population um William C Foster who's a labor organizer from the 30s who I also study right like he he very intentionally strategized you know he was a communist um He's a member of the Communist Party, but he was also a labor leader in the Congress of Industrial Organizations. Um, and he really intentionally strategized like using to, about using churches, like using neighborhood right. associations, using, tapping into all of those networks when trying to organize a strike. And similarly, like the, the black church um, was an incredible asset, right? A crucial oh, yeah. site of political organizing for the civil rights movement. Um, and so... I think that's one way in which we are really challenged today is that, you know, we're not, um, we're not used to, you know, being organized.
1: Yeah. And membership in all these organizations have gone down. I even think about like the Boy Scouts of America has fallen apart. You know what I mean? And this is just, this is just kids going whitewater rafting. Like, Membership organizations of all kinds have have fallen. Uh, young people are like leaving churches in droves, um, even if whether you right. want to see churches as a good or bad yeah. organizing force, um, and I think it depends on the church. But like we're less members of churches, and then it strikes me, and obviously union membership is vastly down. But then it strikes me that the the organizations that do exist tend to run top down. Like one of the biggest yeah. organizations is um, AARP, right? Is a huge right. membership organization, hugely political power, politically powerful. But it's not like you can show up to an AARP meeting right. and <laughs> like be the head of your local chapter of the AARP right. and right. have some political power. You get the magazine in the mail and you pay them your ten bucks a month or whatever, and you get the the discount. And then the whoever runs the AARP goes and talks to Congress. And guess what? Unfortunately, the majority of our unions now operate that way. And so do our churches, because we have mega churches now. Instead of, you know, deacons are not powerful anymore. Now it's just the, the person at the top. Um, and so all those organizations have been hollowed out of their membership power. Do you agree with that?
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, definitely. And even organizations that kind of present themselves as social movement organizations Um, Or, like, community organizations often are, you know, um, effectively, like, nonprofits with a small professional staff, you know, and then members who make donations or who, you know, um, phone bank occasionally or whatever. Um, But it is uh, rare to have a truly mass organization.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, well, let's. We we've really done a good job of outlining the problem of our present moment, right? <laughs> yeah. But the folks who we are talking about, we keep referring to, uh, did so much in the face of, I would say, greater challenges in many cases. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So after our next break, let's get into that and talk about how they did it and what we can learn from them. We'll, we'll be right back with more Mia in a way. I mean, I used to get weird people calling my cell phone all hours of the day or night until I signed up for Delete Me and it cut it right out. So if you want to safeguard yourself like that and live with a peace of mind that experts are hunting down and removing your personal information every three months, then check out Delete Me. Go to joindelete.me.com/Adam and get 20% off for all consumer plans with the code Adam. That's joindelete.me.com/Adam. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit Figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Okay, so Mia, we talked about how uh, the, you know, right now we're at this period where we're alienated from each other, where, you know, we have low institutional organization. Um, as a result, it's very difficult for us to organize and have mass action in ways that'll actually you know, help fight back against, you know, the erosion of civil rights, all these other problems. But but it strikes me that when we talk about the labor movement in, you know, the early 20th century, when we talk about the civil rights movement in the mid-20th century, these are people who faced maybe bigger problems. I mean, we're talking about black Americans in the Deep South. Obviously, they had, you know, the black church was a really important institution, and we lack institutions that are that powerful today, but we're talking about people who, The weight of, for hundreds of years, the U.S. state and federal government worked to alienate them from each other and from any possible institution to disrupt their social bonds, to disrupt the black family, to disrupt any kind of black political organization, hundreds of years of that. Um, the labor movement fought back against, you know, the federal government selling, sending troops to kill strikers, <laughs> right, uh, and, uh, you know, a sort of direct violence that – I mean, we can talk about what happened in the wake of George Floyd's murder, but, you know, uh, it, it was – the amount of death was was greater then. And so – and by the way, they didn't have communications technology. They didn't have the internet. They didn't even have cell <laughs> – they didn't even have cell phones, right? <laughs> so so – So how did the, I know that seems silly, but, but, but truly like, you know, when you, again, you read histories, the civil rights movement and they're like, what, mimeographing pamphlets and handing them out. Um, and and so the amount of, uh, the amount of physical labor that it took to, to do that sort of communication or organizing was huge. So how did these movements do it? What was the special sauce that they had?
2: Hmm. Um, Great question. Um, Well, so let's think about um, the uh, 1930s and the um, kind of uh, labor militancy that helped to produce the New Deal, right? In part, we have to say that it was also, there were also a lot of historical conditions that created a situation where um, millions of workers were able to recognize not only that they were suffering, you know, the effects of the Great Depression, but also that their suffering was widespread and um, therefore pointed to kind of bigger social problems and, and was not just the product of their individual failing. Um and um, and so we saw kind of the low point of the Great Depression in 1933, followed by in 1934 this year-long um, kind of strike right across industries and across the country um, that helped to to produce. Um, the uh, the Wagner Act, among other things, right, which actually kind of for the first time um, guaranteed workers the right to, to unionize, but also with like at least some kind of federal enforcement, as well as the kind of social safety net that com- came out of the Social Security Act and the GI Bill, etc. And that was expanded by subsequent Democratic administrations. So um, what happened? How did they do that? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think think that, you know, they didn't have favorable conditions, right? They they had, you know, they had some signals from the federal government that it was like it was okay to unionize, right? That were helpful, that gave them kind of some hope and um and and caused a lot of people to flood into into unions and to try to, to mobilize. You know, workers were still like, you know, fighting cops in the streets, right? And um and being killed, right? You know, I think what they had, you know, which we, which is the challenge that we that we face, right? Um, but they had, um, you know, a vibrant left, right? They had, um, you know, the they had organizations like the the Communist Party that William Z. Foster was uh, was a member of. Um, And they had, um, you know, many other kind of like radical organizations that um, intentionally embedded themselves within the labor movement, right, both as union staff and also as rank and file workers um, in order to um, radicalize workers, in order to bring them a sense of history, a sense of like what the labor movement could accomplish, um, you know, an analysis of um, the injustice that they were experiencing and what they could do about it um, and who were also, because of their ideological commitments, willing to put themselves on the line and, you know, take a lot of hits um, in order to kind of inspire other workers to take up the struggle, right? Um, so that is one thing that I think they had going for them um, that was really important and that did have kind of a big effect. That can be a source of hope for us, actually, because, you um, we are in a moment of what feels like, and we hope that it actually is a kind of resurgence in the labor movement. We've seen, you know, um, petitions yeah. for new unions increase 57% just in the first six months of this fiscal year. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen all these young people, um, you know, trying to unionize um, their workplaces, whether that's Starbucks or Amazon or now like Trader Joe's. And um, and among those among those people are a lot of really politicized um you know college grads and yeah. people and people who are just like kind of you know have lived through Trump's election they they lived through before that the finan- the financial crisis they've lived through occupy they or at least it's in their recent memory they lived through kind of the Bernie Sanders um campaign and the hope and then disappointment of that right um and they lived through the the George Floyd protests and i think that they have a kind of really sharp analysis of um, the forms of political and economic domination that you know we are all <laughs> experiencing and um, and so you know I think the reason that I think that you can see in the 1930s that it actually didn't take that many people like that you mm-hmm. know in each of these industries or in each of these cities to kind of help get things going right yeah. and to kind of raise the stakes. That's something that I think, you know, we can all do is we can try to participate in, in like rebuilding the labor movement and in rebuilding the U.S. left.
1: Yeah, well, and that's what you're describing sounds very similar to, there's this concept I've heard of the Brahmin left, that is the, you know, the highly educated, um, uh, you know, folks like you're describing um, who uh, are involved in these movements. But in the 30s, you talk about how folks like William Foster uh, were helping lead a really broad based like workers rights movement where mm-hmm. the the actual movement was you know a mass movement of working class people
2: yeah and foster himself was an industrial worker right and he was not college educated he was not high school uh, educated right okay. he was polit- he was a radical but that doesn't mean that he was like a you know an intellectual or like yeah. and he, in fact he was extremely dismissive of like professionals and intellectuals yeah. um, uh, throughout his his career so I don't mean to suggest that this um, that this layer of like radicals and militants within the labor movement um, has been historically or should be you know a, a layer of intellectuals or people who are highly educated
1: no but you're but you are describing that like uh, highly educated intellectuals can also uh, like participate in this layer um, it sounds like what you're saying um but i I guess the question i have is that uh you know a a thing people often ask about the labor movement in america is why is not why is the working class not angrier (laughs) why is the working class not uh you know engaging in mass movements we saw a mass movement after george floyd's murder uh, across a a racial dimension and certainly uh, i would say there's more working class people in the street than not um but you know you don't have we don't have Uh, a a large period of labor unrest right now is what it doesn't feel like. Um, And is that a missing ingredient or is that something that we can cultivate somewhat if we're trying to to build a new labor movement that can fight back against the capitalist forces that face us in the same way that happened in the 30s?
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that the working class is angry. Like, I think that when you, you know, when you talk to people, um, uh, you know, I don't know, like I do some, you know, canvassing um, and, you know, talk to people about, um, the economic situation in this country or whatever, like people are plenty angry. Um, but they are also very disaffected. And I think yeah. they're also for good reasons. Um, you know, uh, like often don't feel that, you know, their becoming politically active is going to have any effect.
1: Yeah. They're right? cynical with good reason.
2: Yeah. Um, And also, right, the labor movement is at an all-time low, right? We, you know, there are lots of um, workers who are working under, you know, difficult conditions and who understand that they're being exploited. But um, we don't have the kind of, like, organizational infrastructure that can make it easy for people to imagine, right, being powerful and being able to actually change something. Yeah. Um, So, but I do think that we can change that, right? Um, And I think that um, it's hopeful that we're seeing such an increase in a kind of, like, desire to, to form unions. And I think that, like, one of the things that is available for us to do at this time is to really try to foment that kind of latent, like, frustration and energy, Right.
1: Yeah. So let's make this really concrete. If we want to uh, start fomenting uh, that, how do we go about do it, doing it like in our daily lives? You know, if, if folks listening are interested in doing so, what is the first step for them?
2: Yeah. So um, the first thing is to join an organization. Right. Or maybe to join multiple organizations. Right. Um, because you as we as individuals are not really capable of doing that much in the face mm-hmm. of the kind of scale of problems that we that we that we face right now but you can join a political organization in your community um you can join um kind of some of the few sort of like mass organizations um that do exist um you can get involved in your own union. You can try to start a union, right, of your own. Um, and um, you can also do, you know, there's, um, there are other ways that you can you know, play a support role in the labor movement, um, uh, even if you are not part of a union right now or it's not possible for you to start one. So there's, for example, something called the Emergency Workers Organizing Committee um, that is um, part of, of DSA. Um, but that is kind of a, a an organization, a committee of like volunteers. Some of a lot of whom are like kind of have some expertise related to labor and who um, are kind of available for people who are interested in starting unions to call and, you know, to ask them to do some research or to, to ask for advice on how they get started. Um, folks also will like phone bank, you know, for labor campaigns through EWOC. Um, so there are organizations like that that you can be that you can be part of. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that's kind of. Um, the The first step, right, is yeah. to to join some
1: organizations. <laughs> join some join some organizations. Reform an organization if you're part of one that is. If you're if you're part of a, a an old sclerotic top down union, you know you can try to uh, uh, get new leadership elected to that union. There's some right. unions that have had success with that, but there's also just at your own workplace talking to the people that you work with and saying like, yes. "Hey, I'm I'm pissed off. Are you pissed off? Are you pissed off? Do you maybe want to?" get organized? Oh, how do we do that? And then reach out to one of those, uh, one of those groups that you're talking about.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, there are also, um, I also think that it's a good, you know, we don't have the kinds of mass organizations that they had in the early 20th century, but there still are like organizations, um, that whether it's, um, you know, uh, you know, at the very local level, like a neighborhood organization, um, or even, like, a church, right, or other community organizations, right, um, and I, I feel like it's an important time, actually, for, um, like, for millennials, for Zoomers, for, like, young people to, to try to root themselves in... Organizations that even aren't necessarily explicitly political um, so that they can, like, know the place where they are and build relationships that can be activated and that can be used, right, um, um, for political purposes, right, in, yeah. in certain moments. Um, and one one way that, you know, you can do that that um, I've written about a little bit recently is... Um, you know, like it's kind of a, it might seem like a dramatic move, but, um, to take, to become a salt, right. To, to take a Mm. job, um, in a particular industry, um, with the intention of forming a union, right. In your workplace. Right. Um, and so, you know, there, I think, you know, there are a lot of, um, folks doing that right now. There's organizations like Amazonians United that are trying to recruit people into those kinds of roles. So I think if you're, You know, if you're, especially if you're a young person and you're thinking about, like, what am I going to do with my life? Um, if you have a theory of social change that involves, right, like the labor movement as a potential vehicle for radical social transformation, then I think like one of the most kind of impactful things you can do is actually try to take a job in a strategic industry, and by that I mean an industry that actually is really central to the functioning of our society, like the logistics industry, but also like the healthcare industry. Right, um, mm. and to try to, um, or the education industry, and to try to um, either form a union, democratize your union, right, like you're talking about, um, uh, to make it more militant and more democratic, to, or like as a rank and file worker to to create a union and to build worker power.
1: Oh, you're talking about some real radical stuff now, Mia. That you would you would uh, take a job. Ooh, I'm gonna go. Oh, there's a star. Uh, there's an Amazon warehouse near me. There's a Starbucks. <laughs> Um, I don't have anything to do. Yeah. I can work for minimum wage for a little while, but while I'm there, I'll spread dissent through the ranks and I'll start whispering and saying, Hey, do you guys want to maybe talk to, uh, talk to a union? Do you want to get organized? That's you're a sleeper agent.
2: (laughs) Well, a lot of people are doing this, right? Like, um, so there are, uh, you know, you, you've like, you've, heard about this, like all these Starbucks, um, that are unionizing. Um, and you know, some of the leaders of that, of that drive are themselves salts, right? There are people who, um, who took those jobs, like with the intention of forming a union, um, that same is so thing cool. at the, same thing at the Amazon labor union, right? Like about a third of a core organizing committee were salts. They were people who heard what was going on. They saw Chris Smalls in the news. Some of them moved across the country, um, to take a job at the Staten Island warehouse because they thought that that was where they could be, you know, make the biggest impact. And yeah. it might sound like a, you know, like, you know, this huge heroic move. And I think it, it, it is. It's a really, like, you know, courageous and, like, um, important thing to do. But also, you know, for a lot of young people, um, these are not necessarily, like, this is not, you know, um, necessarily a huge Sacrifice, right? If you think about the kind of um, difficulty that young people face, like sort of trying to like make it securely into the um, you know quote unquote like professional class, or to like you know get a stable like sort of white collar job, right? Um, I think people actually, I think young people do face these trade offs between having like meaningful work, right, and having work that's actually kind of like well compensated. And if you really believe that like, the most important thing that you could be doing right now is building up the labor movement, then you know, taking a job at Amazon or taking a job at Starbucks, right, um, that's a good job, right? That's a job that comes with, uh, with a sense of purpose um, that puts, that puts you know, your, your political capacity to use in a way that um, is um, really valuable.
1: Yeah, that is so cool. I also, though, love just want to return to something you said a moment ago about uh, joining maybe non political organizations. That, you know, yeah. uh, joining, if you are a member of a church, getting involved in the actual leadership of the church such that you know the other folks in leadership and you know the parishioners and you can you know if something happens in your community that you want to support and you think your membership w- would support you can you know you have an email list that you can reach out to or you're trusted in your community um or I mean this is something I've done myself over the past couple of years I joined a neighborhood hom- homelessness coalition I became really involved in my union um and Sometimes I think, "Wait, what am I doing? Like I'm a comedian, <laughs> I should be on tour. Why am I spending so much effort on like a, just a neighborhood organization?" And then I realize, "Wait, no, when something happens, when I want to fundraise for a for a pro-labor candidate when I want to uh, you know, get get people to turn out for, for an event that I think is important. Oh, I can do it now. Um, and I can also sort of very slowly bend the organization to support the sort of things that I care about. And in all those organizations now, in the homelessness organization, when you know, a, a new strain of the pandemic comes through, we talk about how to keep people safe. When, you know, the Dobbs decision came down in my union, we talk about what our response should be to that, even though we're just a union of, you know, writers. Um, these are, uh, you know, these can become locuses of political activity, even if they don't seem like it at first. Uh, I, I wanna turn quickly before we before we end, um, uh, once again, to the civil rights movement of the 60s, and you were talking about uh, Ella Baker and all these incredible leaders. Um, we spent some time on labor when we talk about how we make process on, progress on uh, race in America. Um, what what are the uh, you said the theory of change? What was the theory of change that these folks had because they were clearly very successful? It's one of the most successful movements in American history. Obviously, much work still to be done, but the progress they made was. Uh, unbelievable and I'm sure sure seemed impossible before they embarked upon it um that they were shocked at every turn at how successful they were so uh what what did they know that we can learn from
2: Baker's theory of change right I think um is really interesting so she she, uh, as you said like you're reading this Taylor branch history of the civil rights movement she's often kind of mentioned as this sort of background organizer figure and contrasted with King um, who was kind of the more prophetic, like charismatic um, mobilizer, right? Um, and it's true that Baker um, really stressed um, organizing, right? She was really good at building the kind of like organizational machinery that could develop new leadership in people who hadn't previously been political and could endure over time. And and one of the things that I write about um, in my article on Baker is that I think, She learned those skills in large part through her experience as a missionary in the Black Baptist Church, right? Mm. So she grew up in the Women's Missionary Society of the Black Baptist Church in North Carolina. And so she had this kind of, like, organizational instinct um, that was really deeply rooted, right, from that. And also a kind of understanding that people change... Not because you give them the right argument, not because you tell them what they ought to think or how they ought to act, but because you bring them into participation in an ongoing way in an organization that's oriented towards your goals. Right. So she was good at building those kinds of organizations. She did that as the director, the branch director of the NAACP. Um, she did that for a time, the um, kind of interim executive director of the S- of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Um, she did that as a mentor to SNCC. But she also, as I, as I mentioned at the beginning, right, She also always um, talked about and focused on mass action, right? I think that she had a really ingenious, Um, and relevant today kind of understanding of the relationship between this kind of background organizing and leadership development and these disruptive moments like the Montgomery bus boycott, like the student sit-ins of the 1960s, um, like the, the Selma march. She consistently tried to build organizations that had kind of like local chapters that were deeply rooted in particular communities, but that were also kind of part of a network that was regional or national Right. Um, So that when things popped off in one place, there was like a way that that could be translated. Right. To to other places. Right. So after the Montgomery bus boycott, you know, people associate the founding of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference with King. And, uh, you know, obviously he played a a really crucial role. But it was Baker and um, her comrades, Baird Rustin um, and Stanley Levison, who actually organized that meeting right that founding meeting of the sclc because they said no we can't just let this momentum go after montgomery we have to create a southwide organization that will connect montgomery with other potential centers of unrest across the south right so yeah. she built these kind of distributed organizations she also um, really focused on um you know identifying and recruiting people who were already leaders like she called them indigenous leaders right within their own communities and in, a, in you know, um, in a particular um, place um, and recruiting them to the movement, right? So that they could bring their networks with them. Um, But beyond that, she also, you know, labor organizers like Foster do that as well and really emphasize that. But Baker is kind of distinctive in that she also really always emphasized, um, you know, that everyone is a potential leader, right? that um, everyone has innate leadership capacities that can be developed through participation in in organizing. And that was both an ethical commitment, you know, and part of her kind of vision of, of a participatory democratic society and a strategic commitment because Baker understood that like the more kind of capacious, individuals you had as part of a movement, um, the more capacity that movement has overall, right? And mm-hmm. um, the more likely it is that an individual like Edie Nixon or Rosa Parks in Montgomery will, like, make a crucial decision, like, take a step that will, um, you know, reverberate, right, um, across the country. So uh, that is kind of how, you know, um, how Baker thought about the, this, this close relationship between, between organizing and, um, and mass action or mobilization. And it's something that I think, um, you know, it's exactly like what I think we need to be doing now in this moment where we are, you know, we are not in a moment of mass mobilization. Um, we need to be thinking about, um, you know, what kinds of skills can we develop What kinds of, you know, policies and demands can we generate? And what kinds of networks of relationships can we build um, that, you know, will help us prepare, right, for the next next moment of mass action?
1: We need to think about those things. We also need to do it, right? We need to actually build the networks. And that's the, that is the part that often seems to be a little bit lacking to me that we, we yes. have the conversation about it like you and I are having, the diff- which is important. It's important to have the conversation. It's important to spread the conversation. Um... But when it comes to, okay, let's actually build (laughs) the regional networks of organizations. Mm -hmm. Like, let me tell you something. Organizing work is very, very difficult. I do a little bit of it myself now.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
1: And I come home from a long day of doing stand-up comedy, and then I'm like, I got to write 15 emails today because I have to try to get people to show up to the meeting, you know?
2: Yeah, yeah. I um, spent a lot of my, you know, like, time in grad school um, organizing um, and Mm. found it to be like almost impossible to like do <laughs> research and writing while also trying to organize cuz they're both yeah. all consuming, you know, organizing is an all consuming activity and it yeah. like requires your attention. You have to be capable of responding to things as they arise, right? It's very difficult. So, and and especially difficult for us as people who have been socialized to be extremely focused on our own careers, like mm-hmm. extremely focused on you know, our own personal advancement in the world, right? Um, and again, like not disciplined or habituated into like showing up to meetings when we say we're going to show up to a meeting, right? Um, or, you know, um, you know, going can't like going canvassing or doing whatever it is on the weekend instead of, um, you know, relaxing or catching up on work. So, I think you know, like you started, you know, by kind of talking about how we're in this moment where we might feel like there's nothing that we can do, you know, um, to to make like to you know make sure that we have a livable future on this planet. Um, but um, I actually think that you know where we've arrived at is that it's not that we don't know what to do, right? Um, we might not have a blueprint, but we do know that you know. Um, both organizing and, and, you know, engaging in mass action are ways that we can make change. Um, and there are lots of different, you know, ways that we can go about that in our, in our lives, some of which we've discussed. But I think the real challenge is more, um, you know, how do we kind of transform ourselves into the kind of people who can do and who do do the things that we know need to be done.
1: Yeah. But the cool thing is, uh, I'm stealing this from uh, one of the wonderful staff members at uh, the Writers Guild of America West, which is one of the unions of which I'm a member. Um, but uh, she put it to me once that uh, wins lead to more wins, you know, and that when you you have the experience of successfully organizing people one time, if you you know you're not sure you can, you're not sure you're that type of person. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, am, am I an organizer? Am I someone who participates in this? I'm, I'm not so sure if that's me. But you go out on a limb and you do one thing you take one action, you uh, send out one email and you schedule one meeting, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And you have it, then uh, uh, you, you feel that and it makes you want to do it again. And when you can give that to other people, it makes them want to do it again too. That wins lead to more wins. Um, yeah,
2: and I think also like it's it's extremely uh, rewarding to do things with other people right? that you wouldn't be able to do on your own. Um, and also to be part of like, you know, in the organizing that I've, that I, I've done, I've never been like a a professional organizer, but, um, but in the organizing that I've done, um, I've made like some of the closest friendships that I Mm -hmm. have and, and what makes them really special to me is that they are in some cases like friendships that I wouldn't have if I if I didn't organize because they're with people who I would otherwise like not ever even interact with. Right. Yeah. Because we are so siloed, you know, into our own, um, you know, our own classes, like our own kind of um, neighborhoods, professions, workplaces, whatever. It's good to do both. It's good to do because like winning is good. And, um, you know, we need a lot more wins, but it's also, you know, good to do because like, you know, whether, you know, the change that we need happens in our lifetimes or not, um, I think, you know, we'll live much more fulfilling and interesting (laughs) and purposeful lives, right? Having, you know, done the things that we knew needed to be done.
1: Yeah. Oh, I've experienced exactly the same thing. You know, the friends that I've made in the homelessness work that I do or the union work that I do are, like, incredibly valuable to me, and they, like, they compound upon each other, you know? That, right. like, the, the, the union people I know are the same people I can get to show up to the fundraiser for the political right. candidate or for the homelessness event or the people I know you know it, it, because I do the union work people I know in the entertainment industry will come to me and ask me questions about you know other topics that they feel they're like okay Adam knows about Adam's the guy I go to, to go to talk about union stuff does he know who I should vote for for mayor
2: right right <laughs> you know? right, right right exactly
1: and, yeah and, and these things all compound and it starts very simply like literally the very first thing I did that made me think oh wait I later realized oh wait this is organizing is when I just put together an email list of everybody I know who is a comedy writer uh because of something i was trying to get done in the writers guild. I wasn't in, even involved in leadership in any way. I was just like there's something that i want people to know about and i just went through my entire email, you know, my contacts list and i was like that person's a writer, that person's a writer, that person's a writer. And i sent them all an email and i said, "Hey, you know, i want to let you know about XYZ." And i was like, "Wait, i uh, oh, i got like 20 people to do a thing." Like Okay. And, oh, I could email them again next time. And then I realize that that's all that anybody in the union is doing in order to get exactly. the word out. They're all just emailing each other. And I'm like, oh, that's the fundamental step. And that's so much more powerful. We've been tricked. This is a little bit of a rant. But we've been tricked by the social media platforms into thinking that's how we get the word out about things, that exactly. we tweet. And all that ends up happening when you tweet is it goes through the algorithm. Some people see it. Some people don't. It's next to all this other shit um, that you know people are angry or distressed about, they scroll past it we're we're giving our power to these you know this very small number of corporations who are controlling the way that we speak to each other. Email is one of the last few direct <laughs> pieces of communication we have <laughs> and and if you say, forget social media, um I'm angry about something, let me email twenty friends like that's yeah. a very basic piece of organizing work that can lead to more
2: yeah, and that what you just said is. A another thread that runs through labor, the labor and civil rights organizing traditions. So, you know, Foster, he wrote this really great manual called Organizing Methods in the Steel Industry that people have been kind of passing around again today. He published in like 1936, and it was kind of like a blueprint for radical organizers in the Congress of Industrial Organizations. Um, but one of the techniques that he describes is what he calls like the chain system of organization. Um, where you identify, you know, specific workers who have, like, you map, like, basically the relationships that each worker has. And, you know, you create a chain where, like, so-and-so organizes so-and-so who organizes these 10 people who organize these, right? Um, And um, when I tried to start a union while I was in graduate school, we did the exact same thing, right? Like, we were like, okay, so-and-so knows the comparativists in the political science department, so he's going to, you know, like, turn all of them out to the rally, whatever. Um, Baker had the same kind of idea with her concept of indigenous leadership. If there, there are moments where everyone wants to, it wants to go out into the streets and protest, but there are also lots of moments where, you know, it's a big lift to get someone, you know, out to an action. And it's, it's the personal relationships that we each have by virtue of participating in institutions that we might not see, but that do exist, right? Like our workplaces, like our, um, you know, professions, um, like our, um, uh, neighborhoods, right. Our families, right. Um, that, um, those relationships, uh, you know, are politically very useful. Right. Yeah. It means that, you know, each of us, even though we might think that we are kind of powerless, right. We actually do have influence, right. We have influence yeah. over some group of people and we can figure out, right. We can figure out how to map our networks and we can figure out how to like make those relationships politically impactful.
1: Yeah, if you say to your friends or your coworkers, workers there, there are friends and co-workers of yours, no matter who you are, who respect you and who right. look to your opinion. And if you say to them, hey, you know, I think that... Uh, uh, it, I don't want to make it about political candidates, but if you... Uh, hey, I think that this is the candidate I support. They'll go, oh, yeah, I mean, I know I know Steve. <laughs> I know Aaron, Totally, And, yeah. and if, they, uh, if that's what they think, then that's probably what I think, too. Or if you say, hey, I'm a little bit pissed off about the workplace... I'm putting together a meeting. They say, oh, you're putting together the meeting? Yeah, sure, I'll go. You know, and, and that right. sort of natural leadership is what you're talking about, and that's something that we, that we all have, as Ella Baker believed. Yeah. Uh, and, and ideally, I, I assume you think that if we all start doing this a lot more, we can actually build movements of the kind that in the 30s and the 50s and 60s did transform America. Can we do it again? Can we use this to transform our country in the ways that we need to? <laughs>
2: Yes, <laughs> we definitely can. <laughs> I hope we can.
1: We've done it before.
2: We've done it before. We've done it, as you said, under conditions where, like, we people faced violent repression mm-hmm. at a scale that is unfamiliar to us, right? So we certainly have the capacity. Like, we may not build, like, three million person large organizations. But first of all, we there are already structures that we participate in and that we can join wherever we live to build out those networks and also there are political organizations and labor organizations that we can join and that we can help to to develop right and and as we saw right like in the 30s we it doesn't necessarily take that many people who have kind of like a clear vision of um, you know, how to run a strike, for example, or, you know, how to get people out in, in the streets for some form of direct action, right? It doesn't necessarily take that many people to make a big impact, right, given the right historical conditions.
1: Uh, thank you so much for coming on me. This has been uh, really, really amazing. Uh, I love the way you're able to go look at the deep history and follow the thread to today and and you know what we can do now i I can't thank you enough for coming on uh where can people find out more about you and your work
2: well thank you so much for having me it's been really fun i guess i'm on social media (laughs) um i don't know i'm in kingston new york you can come and you know we can we can hang out we can go to the elks club or the american legion i'm working on my my first books i bet i have um a recent article in the Boston review about, um, salting. Um, Mm. and, um, I have an article on Ella Baker in the American political science review.
1: Thank you so much for coming on. It's been wonderful.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Well, thank you once again to Mia for coming on the show. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Next week, we're going to bring you another incredible thinker who is going to share with us how we can make the change in our world that we so desperately need. I want to thank our producer Sam Radwin and our engineer Kyle McGraw and everyone who supports us on Patreon at the fifteen dollar a month level. That's Whiskey Nerd eighty eight, Susan E Fisher, Spencer Campbell, Sam Ogden, Samantha Schultz, Ryan Shelby, Robin Madison, Richard Watkins, Rachel Nieto, Paul Schmidt, Paul Malk, Nuyagik Iipiluk, Nikki Batelli, Nicholas Morris, Mrs King Coke, Mom named Gwen, Miles Gillingsrud, Mark Long, Lisa Matulis, Lacey Tiganoff, Kelly Lucas, Kelly Casey, Julia Russell, Jim Shelton, Hillary Wilkin, Ethan Jennings. Dude with Games, Drill Bill, David Conover, David Condry, Courtney Henderson, Chris Staley, uh, Charles Anderson, Chase Thompson, Bao, Camus and Lego, Beth Brevik, Aurelio Jimenez, Antonio LB, Ann Slagle, Alan Liska, Alexei Batalov, and Adrian. If you want to join them, once again, head to patreon.com slash Conover. Thank you to Andrew WK and to Falcon for Northwest for building me the incredible custom gaming PC that I record so many of these episodes on. You can find me online at adamconover or adamconover.net where you can you can also see my tour dates. I'm coming soon to a city near you. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week on Factually.
0: I don't know a,
1: podca- <clears throat> a podcast network. That was a hate gum podcast.